whether it's in a museum or a gallery, we plan to do multiple shows. Her works from the 70s are fabulous. It goes like where we end up at 69, the 70s get more geometric and there's lots of pain and a sort of movement going on. And then the 80s. So we're excited about all of it, obviously. So I, I just think there's more to discover and more will turn up. And I think when things happen at auction that it went much higher than expected. And I think they will. They're really good paintings. So even though they look divergent, they're really consistent with what she's, how she paints, how she lays paint onto a canvas. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Manneker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information, as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. Lynn Drexler's artwork emerged from relative obscurity this spring to make nearly $9 million at auction so far this year. There's the potential for another million or more before year's end, because there are four more works from the 1960s in next week's New York sales. Christine Berry and Sukanya Rajaratnam just opened a joint show of work from Drexler's first decade, 1959, to 69. Barry Campbell and Mnuchin Galleries are hosting the show at their respective locations. Christine and Sukanya join me to talk about the show, along with Julian Ehrlich, whose post-war and contemporary art auctions at Christie's launched the market frenzy. We're sitting here at the Mnuchin Gallery in this extraordinary show of Lynn Drexler's work, which is a paired show with the Barry Campbell Gallery's show, where you're both splitting the work from the first decade, 59 to 69, of her work. I was hoping we could start with a little bit of biographical background, Christine. Could you tell us a bit about Lynn Drexler, her life? Lynn Drexler really has a life made for Hollywood, frankly. This could be a movie. Uh, She was born in 1928 in Virginia, um, and she always loved art. Uh, Her parents were very supportive. She took art classes when she was a very young gal, and she, unfortunately, her father committed suicide when she was a teenager. And so this starts sort of some tragedy in her life But as we know from her paintings, they're quite bright and joyous. She studied at the Richmond Institute with a professor named Teresa Pollack, who was the head of the art department. And it turns out Teresa Pollack had studied in New York at the Art Students League. It was very encouraging for her students to come to New York. So we believe that she was one of the reasons that Lynn Drexler came to New York along with some other female students at the time and studied with Hans Hoffman. So in 1956, Drexler comes to New York, studies with Hoffman. She's one of Hoffman's favorite students. In fact, Hoffman asks her to audit the night classes. She doesn't even have to pay because she's so good. Um, And so from there, she studies with Hoffman in Provincetown. 
Hoffman enjoys her as a student so much, he says, you've got to study with Motherwell at Hunter College. She goes to Hunter College. Motherwell is wowed by her, says, you've got to keep going as an artist. And she does. And she continues to be part of the scene in New York City. She was part of the 8th Street Club. She met her husband, John Holtberg, at the club in 1962. Holtberg at the time was a much more well-known artist. He was showing with the Martha Jackson Gallery. So he sort of introduced her around, but she really didn't show at the time. Her first solo show was at Tanninger Gallery, the artist cooperative, um, and we actually spoke to Lois Dodd about how she remembered Lynn Drexler, and she remembers this cool woman riding around on a bike in Soho. And so really, that was, that was it. That was her main, the high point was Tanninger Gallery in 61, and here we are 38 years you know, later having a solo show uh, in New York. From the mid-60s, she and her husband eventually moved up to Maine, first as kind of a summer home, as, as many, Lois Dodd was one of the artists, but Alice Katza, and there's a whole community of artists who spent uh, a good part of their time in, in Maine, and she ends up on Monhegan Island, living there full-time and painting. They started going up there in the 60s, after they got married, that was their honeymoon, was going to Monhegan. John Holper actually owned the house up in Monhegan with Martha Jackson, <laughs> so one of those sort of that's part of the sad story also was this affair going on and Lynn Drexler knowing but here she was in this beautiful place so the travels they went to Mexico and they went to LA and San Francisco because he was teaching in all these places and she sort of followed along but it was fortunate that she had some shows there as well so some of her best reviews are out west and in Hawaii pretty amazing that it was spread that far and then she kind of got fed up with the art world, I would say, and in 1983 moved full-time to Monhegan Island, Maine, all year round, which is quite unusual. There's not many people that are full-time residents there. Um, and, her, and her style changed. She became a representational artist. You can, there's definitely a through line with what she's doing here, but you can see the landscapes and seascapes. I've seen in some places that someone said it's tourist art, but it really was not tourist art. It was very sophisticated representational painting that still had these geometric forms and this thick brushwork. They're beautiful paintings. And then she dies in 1999, and about um, eight or nine years later, uh, one of the Portland museums, I can't remember whether... The Monhegan Museum started the show in 2008, and then it went to the Portland Museum in 2009. So it moves to the Portland Museum, it attracts a, a, a fair amount of attention, and there are galleries selling her work in the period between 2009 and the present day. But I was wondering, Julian, could you sort of pick that up for, for us? I know that some of the first sales uh, took place at Christie's and you were involved with them. Sure. Um, in 2021, we saw this kind of initial breakout price for the artist. Uh, it was in a day sale in around a 20-inch square work from 1960 called Daffodil Gluster made $75,000 against a sub $10,000 estimate. Broadly in the auction world, we see a lot of attention being paid to women painters of the mid-century that might have been overlooked, but this was a clear standout. So as we kind of explored a partnership with the Farnsworth Museum, which is in Maine, um, a really wonderful museum that was deaccessioning works by Lynn Drexler, in part to help diversify their holdings and acquire new works, we really saw um, the two works we were tasked with selling as an opportunity to make big public prices for the artist. So subsequently in 2022, 
we sold a painting called Flowered Hundred that, against a very modest estimate, made in excess of a million dollars, which was certainly exciting for us um, and I think has opened up a world, at least for auction, of consignments and, and works appearing for the first time in many years. And then there was a second painting that you sold as well. Was it from the same consignment or a different consignment? The same consignment. So the Farnsworth had received a gift from the artist's estate um, in the early 2000s, and they had selected two paintings of similar scales and dates. So both very early 60s, you know, that, that period we're seeing the strongest prices to sell. So in the May Day sale, then a second example made around $1.5 million. And that brought out a lot of other works uh, at various other houses because we've now seen uh, three or four uh, different uh, sales, uh, all in that sort of same uh, region, anywhere from you know half a million to a, a million dollars. None, I think, publicly uh, at the same level of the million and a half that you, you guys sold, correct? Yeah, that remains the artist's record. Sukanya, take, take us uh, uh, from there. I mean, this has happened in a very short period of time. Th- that's not that unusual these days, but it's still, even given the kind of you know rocketing market for artists, usually for young living artists, this has been very striking. I was hoping you could sort of walk us a little through how the private market developed or how your sort of this alliance of bringing the estate and Mnuchin together uh, developed. Yes, um, I started hearing about Lynn at the beginning of this year, a couple of months before that first Farnsworth painting had sold. And uh, I approached Sarah Pritchard, who'd um, had an auction history, who I'd heard had been quite involved with Lynn's work. And um, I started talking to her and asked if I could get an introduction to the estate and to Barry Campbell at the same time. This was all happening concurrently with the sale that would break a record at Christie's. So it happened in record time. Sarah made the introduction. Uh, Christine and I met along with Michael Rancourt, who um, runs the estate. And we got along from uh, our first meeting, and I said, I sort of instinctively knew that this was going to be a big phenomenon. And I said to them, we can only gain strength in numbers, and that we could all benefit from the Mnuchin platform. And they agreed. So, so what made you have that feeling? I'd be interested to, if you could articulate your gut. I know that's not an easy thing to do, but but is it? There's a confluence of very different things going on here. Uh, an interest in reclaiming artists who have been overlooked, uh, an interest in a- abstract ar- ar- artists, which is sort of coming back in a, a, a bit of a big way. And um, you know, I'm curious both your gut and then your conversations with collectors, their reactions, their interests in this artist. Sure. First and foremost, not every forgotten artist deserves to be resurrected. The art in itself has to be of a certain quality, and I felt it immediately with Drexler. Um, Secondly, I've always been a champion for the underdog, and Lynn's story somehow resonated with me. There's a great line um, she's famous for having said, the handmaid to a genius, speaking to, of her husband, of course. And here's a classic story of a very gifted, much younger woman painter essentially subjugating her career to her more famous husband. We've seen this movie before. Krasner comes to mind, of course. And um, 
that, you know, fueled me to look deeper in a way. And I was writing the acknowledgements in the catalog. And um, as always, five minutes before we had to go to the press. And like the first thing that came to mind that I put down on paper is that history is shaped by the stories we tell, you know, and stories have been told from a very particular vantage. And it's our job to change that for the better and to address prevailing bias. And Lynn is a painter who we've resurrected not because she was a woman who had, you know, quite a tragic in a way life for the most part and was forgotten, but because she was a fantastic artist who happened to be a woman. And so all those things, I'm articulating them now, but I felt on a very instinctive level. So that's why I approached the estate and Christine and Martha, you know, in a very sort of speedy and I would hope with great conviction. Absolutely. It was great. It was perfect timing, really, because mm -hmm. we had been working for two years talking to the estate about planning a show, and we could see the momentum happening as well. I mean, we've built our business on representing underknown, sort of bringing back artists, particularly women artists from this time. So I do feel like there is a shift with collectors. There was an exhibition of the Denver Art Museum did a show of women of abstract expressionism in 2016. Everyone sort of knows this book now, and it's become a little bit of a Bible that people say, well, is so-and-so in the book? Is this and that? And I, so start, that sort of kicked the can rolling and gave some credibility, and then there were other shows of women artists happening. So we knew, like, Lynn Drexler, I, I had sold Lynn Drexler 20 years ago. Um, so I knew her work. I, I had done some shows on Maine artists. So she was sort of pigeonholed as this main artist. Um, and, and so, but we knew the work was good and we were selling the work. So we were excited about it. And then all this sort of kicks up and wow, this makes it nice. Mnuchin wants to have a meeting. All right. So we, we met Sukanya and of course, we had a little fear in our hearts that, you know, what was going to happen to us and to the estate. But it's been a wonderful collaboration. And the shows look amazing uptown and downtown. We have two different personalities and the work shines through in both sort of periods that we're showing. So, And they're going to be in uh, the next few weeks, uh, several more uh, Drexlers in the auctions. And obviously a lot of other artists who are being you know, situated in, in the constellation of art and artists that people are uh, looking at. Christine just brought up an influential show, followed by some auction records, followed by an influential gallery or set of gallery shows that uh, give people more to see. What's the next phase in all of that from your perspective, just as someone who, who works in the auction market? I would say what's key here is education. Um, with some artists who have been in the auction market for decades at high prices. Collectors have a real discernment in terms of period, style, what they're looking for, what they think is, you know, the place where the artist is most successful. I think we've had these amazing initial very high prices and those will continue to happen. But as different collectors go to shows like this one, um, learn more about the artist, as that base grows and grows, then the market will invariably change. But I will say one thing that's heartening to me, and I think a testament to the continued demand for the artist, is that these estimates, while initially very low, um, have gone up with each successive sale. 
Um, I think that kind of points that to the market becoming less speculative and really uh, a stronger base of collectors returning each time we offer works of quality to participate, which is really fun knowing that we had this kind of initial splash and it continues. Has that been your sense from both your and the other houses' sales that the buyers are collectors rather than dealers or uh, you know people taking a position? I think with any artist, it's always a mix, but. I, you know, we discretion's key with anything, so I can't really say. Sorry. No, that's quite right. I think it's more the market di dynamics uh, of it. Sukanya, what's your sort of uh, view of this market? We have been very um, careful, both Christine and I, to place the works we've been entrusted with with collectors. Yes, we have um, interest from a more speculative angle, but I think it's vitally important in this first go around that these paintings end up in, in serious homes because that in itself grows the market, the visibility, the anchor, if you will. All of that is important. And really building building a market. So it's not just a an auction record here, an auction record there. These shows are selling out. Our show is sold out. So there is a basis set, and then we can go from there. So So collectors don't have to feel like, well, how did this happen out of nowhere? It's not out of nowhere. There are exhibitions and sales that are solid. And one of the things that um, I pitched to both Christine and Michael Rancourt of the estate is that when I'm looking at this transactionally, we're looking at this on the basis of legacy building. Lynn deserves an entire trajectory, not just the, these two shows. And to Christine's earlier point, I think what's important to add about this market is that there have been collectors who have felt passionate about this work um, for many, many years. So even though these big public prices are new, there's certainly a strong base of uh, really passionate people who have supported this work. No, I thought it was noteworthy that one of the recent sales, I think it was the one at Bonhams, had come from a like 2017 purchase at a um, gallery. So someone who wasn't necessarily a long-term uh, holder, though you could, you know, people have been owning a lot of this art for 20, 30, 40 years. You can't necessarily uh, blame them if suddenly they're worth uh, 600000 a million dollars and they, they, you know, they've had it for 20 years wanting to sell those uh, works. What needs to happen next? I mean, as an artist and an, uh, an important abstract artist, having her be in more shows and maybe less like rediscovery shows and more situating her, you know, I think um, uh, Sukanya, you and I have discussed uh, uh, Joan Mitchell as sort of the paragon of where, where uh, you would want her to be. And, and how do you sort of make that case or, or, or allow collectors and people to begin to see her as more than just a discovery, but fit it into a, a bigger store? Well, I think beyond just collectors, we're working with museums to acquire work. So that's the next step. She's not in a lot of museum collections, which is surprising. So from there, hopefully a museum show, hopefully a traveling museum show. So real substantial exhibitions in non-commercial institutions will be helpful. And then spreading the market further internationally, I think that will also assist in what we're doing. So it takes time. This, Even though this has happened quickly on some levels, it hasn't happened quickly. So I, I think... Yeah. And, you know, in terms of museum shows, there are so many... Of course, there's the big monographic show that we would all love to see, but then there are the in interim shows that I've already sort of visualized in my mind.
mind, <laughs> my fantasy <laughs> museum exhibition, <laughs> um, where she's juxtaposed. And one of the great strengths about Lynn, I think, the, the, the reason it resonates with so many different kinds of collectors is I see her as a bridge between late 19th century to post-war um, abstraction. So you see elements of Klimt, Van Gogh, Seurat, you know, uh, lots of artists like that, Bonnard, Bouillard, mm -hmm. and then, um, of course, you have the Hoffman influence, but, you know, there are some paintings in the show that could easily hold their own um, with the Joan Mitchell, as, as I've said in the past. With some of her later paintings, you know, the other day I couldn't sleep, and I thought, maybe I'd like to see some of her later paintings hang with Hockney. You know, why not? And these are new ways to sort of think about her work and craft um, institutional shows in ways that are less traditional, but very important for how Lynn is perceived going forward. I can only go off of the vase with flowers that I saw sold at uh, uh, Sotheby's uh, in in the summer or the spring or maybe just the, the last season. And I'm assuming you're thinking like the, the Hockney sunflowers or the, those kinds of paintings. You know, when you look at her later landscape paintings, and our shows don't have these, it goes beyond post-war. You can hang a painting of hers next to a Matthew Wong, and it looks extremely contemporary. So I, actually, I, I want to rephrase what I said. She, she spans an entire century, not just 50 years. Late 19th century into the 21st century, her work carries resonance depending on how you view it and who you put her next to. And I think that is sort of a vitally important step that we should consider. I'm getting excited for the Matthew Wong and Lynn Drexler show <laughs> at Mnuchin Gallery coming this oh, next spring. <laughs> You mentioned sort of later work. I mean, I think it, it, that's also part of it uh, as well, getting uh, collectors to develop interest about uh, different sort of sections. I mean, e even in the, the shows here, it's, you know, I know she worked for several years in the, the you know, I don't even know how you describe the pointillist work, but then it very quickly it moves into different phases, uh, even within the scope of uh, uh, this show. Is it the same sort of thing, you know, getting museum shows to do it or do your own sort of broader uh, shows where you've done the first decade, now you can uh, generate or push some of that interest maybe towards later? That's sort of our job representing the estate is to show works and choose works to show that maybe the market's not necessarily ready to, to see and put their money on yet and to explain why and show how important they are. And that's one goal that we've had and we've talked about doing. And so I think that's, that's the next thing. And whether it's in a museum or a gallery, we plan to do multiple shows. Her works from the 70s are fabulous. It goes like where we end up at 69, the 70s get more geometric and there's lots of pain and a sort of movement going on. And then the 80s. So, we're excited about all of it, obviously. So I, I just think there's more to discover and more will turn up. And I think when things happen at auction, that later still life did very well from a low estimate. And I think some people thought, well, this isn't going to go. And um, I actually had someone bidding on it. I thought, well, you'll, you'll buy it. Don't worry. And it, it went much higher than expected. And I think they will. They're really good paintings. So even though they look divergent, they're really consistent with what she's, how she paints, how she lays paint onto a canvas. I think the striking thing about this show here at Mnuchin is just within a, a fairly consistent vocabulary, uh, the works can be very different. 
As you pointed out, the earliest work that you have almost has this element where it looks like street art with these bright oranges, but also, you know, the, the staining, I mean, the dripping and the, the, the sense of that to these very finely, you know, assembled and, and sort of tightly made works to there's another work that has all this motion in it and they are, you know, still working within the uh, very same methods, but coming with uh, different results. So in those sort of three or four years, she was able to execute a lot of different ideas within uh, a short compass. Are, are you getting requests, uh, you know, people coming to you uh, looking for not just Drexler's, but what's the next thing that that leads them to? I mean, to, to what we've kind of discussed in this conversation, um, there are so many associations you can bring to the work. Um, because it resonates with what so many other artists are doing. So to Sukanya's point, you could be looking for Drexler and also kind of um, artists of vaguely Hermilia thinking about um, some people who were kind of with the same galleries or, you know, people very inspired by nature, by music. Um, or you could be looking historically at canonical post-impressionist names that you want to then pair the work with. It's truly a diverse array of people coming to the work which is a really interesting dynamic of the market. Collectors have gotten very Catholic these days, so we don't think of them necessarily as sort of, you know, uh, impressionist or artist-specific collectors. But are the collectors themselves along a vein, or are they...? I would say, again, there's a wide range of people. There are people who are interested and have previously, you know, asked for color field artists. There are collectors who have been looking for important women abstract artists. Um, it's really a big range of people. And are there just, um, I mean, I guess, are people collecting in specifically abstract art these days who then sort of come to this because it's a, to their mind, a new example of an abstract uh, uh, artist? I'm sure that could be true. Are you trying to kind of talk about maybe a move towards abstraction and as kind of a new viewpoint of the market as opposed to figuration? I don't want to make sort of broad statements about the market. Uh, I'm asking because you're on the front lines of the market. You have lots of people come through. I'm always curious. I think the one thing that doesn't come out in the media is the dynamic of what drives people to uh, these things. We always think we can see it from the, the, the numbers or the sales, but it often reflects very different things sure. that we're not clear about. I think as collectors become more educated about the artist, one thing that I'm consistently struck by, regardless of who I'm talking about the work with, is that they're, they're impacted by the strength of the picture. They see the work you know, in the exhibition and they say, wow, that's a really good painting. And that kind of transcends a specific interest you know, I only collect abstract or I only collect from a certain period. It's kind of what the object itself holds. Um, and that's been a really kind of illuminating dynamic of being in this market, at least in the auction side, is that we do these big exhibitions, sometimes 200 works spanning 80 years. Um, and it's really interesting to see how people are then drawn to the canvases. They might have come in for something else. Um, but they're looking at the work. Yeah, and to Julian's point, um, I would love in the future for the auction houses to think more loosely about not just Lynn's work, everything. Because as I was walking through, for example, the Monet Mitchell show in Paris, I was dropping in Lynn Drexler's Into the Show in my mind, and there's a painting downstairs in the show entitled 1960 that I called the Water Lily Painting. And again, you know, in an impressionist viewing, I'd love to see a Drexler hanging next to a Monet. And I would love to see a Monet collector look at a Drexler. Basically think outside of the box 
And when you look at it that way, um, you know, the potential for Lynn's work is, is limitless. We shouldn't just look at her as a mid-century rediscovery. No, isn't her great advantage uh, her wall power? I mean, I would just say collectors are walking into the gallery now, right now saying, why don't I know who this is? How could I, could I not know who this great artist is? And that is based on the paintings. They might not even see the wall text or or the you know press release right there. And that's amazing to see. And that's a range of people from students to collectors of ABEX. So we, we have put a catalog together, which I think to Julian's point about education, Gail Levin wrote the essay, a 7,500-word essay. She is the biographer on Lee Krasner, and she really laid out the basics. And that was needed, because there really wasn't a biography, even a straight biography that was correct. So now we have that. So that is a good basis for what we're doing. Gail said that she was interested in writing an entire novel now, yeah. kind of like the Krasner biography. And to Christine's earlier point, there's something very cinematic about this story, you know, and one can only hope that something happens, that where, where... Who plays Lynn Drexler? <laughs> <laughs> this issue of color, I mean... Hoffman's uh, an important, you know, uh, color theorist and uh, certainly as a, a teacher. And the wall power isn't, doesn't just come from the color, but her, uh, role as a colorist is, is certainly in these shows very, very striking. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that sort of interacts both aesthetically, but also in terms of the market. So what I love about Lynn, the first thing that struck me about Lynn is that she breaks all the rules. And I love people who break all the rules, but people who understand the rules first, because you have to understand them to break them. So it's clear that she went through Hoffman, but her juxtapositions of color don't really make sense if you were doing it from a purely academic standpoint. Flowered Hundred, one of the things that really struck me when I saw it with Julian back in March. And, um, you know, I think I remember saying these juxtapositions you would never see. You know, she puts mustard next to pink, next to something else of, of very disparate families. And um, it takes a particular kind of confidence to do that and to succeed in doing that. And that's what I love about Lynn. There's something about him. There's a sort of, a, despite not being known in her lifetime, there's something about a maverick in her spirit, yeah. you know? And that comes across with every painting. The lead painting in our show is called Vitality. Mm -hmm. And it's red. It's just this brilliant red. So they're so joyous. It makes them appealing. Yes, they're appealing. And I think that matters to the market. They're collectible and beautiful to look at. I think it's color. We, we talk about the color so much, but these compositions are really pretty sophisticated. So these ethereal works here, the balance of, of having that loose push-pull, and then in our show, they really get complicated, sort of swirling and geometric from that. So it's the combination of those two things together that I think are very unique. I've always talked about her unique technique. We can compare her to other artists, but I don't know anybody else that works just like her. No, and in those later works, the the still lives, you see both. It's not like she just gives it all up and starts painting flowers. There's still strong elements that make it recognizable as her, as her work. And the patterning, too, we didn't really talk about this, and Gail Levin only started to talk about it, 
But in the 70s, you know, she's very aware of, she's contemporaneous with the pattern and decoration movement. She makes quilts, she sews, she embroiders. So all of these things contribute. We haven't looked at that side and haven't seen those things in person yet, but we will. That's a whole museum show right there. <laughs> Again, the, the quilts in Linda Rexler. <laughs> There's a, nothing else. We will we'll leave it there. And thank you all, Julian, Scania. Thank you thank so much. Thank you. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it. <laughs>